Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And before we get into today's episode, I have a special event to announce, la la. Our past guest, Egan Dean, is a PhD candidate at Rutgers, and he is organizing a symposium on the trans 19th century. It'll be on Friday, April 28th in Murray Hall at Rutgers. We'll have all the details in the show notes. Guests include Kajia Min, Jules Gilt-Peterson, Greta LaFleur, Jen Magnon, and Mark Rifkin. They'll be talking about trans ways of being in the long 19th century in America and exploring queer and trans stances toward historical study and genealogy. So obviously, if you like this podcast, that must sound like more fun than a barrel of monkeys to you. (laughs) So it'll be very fun for you, and you should check out all the details in the show notes. But today... I am here with my extremely special guest, Kim Tran. Kim is a writer and a consultant on transformative justice, sexual harassment prevention, and unlearning anti-Blackness in non-Black communities, among many other subjects. Her work has been featured in NPR, Slate, and the New York Times. She holds a PhD in ethnic studies with a designated emphasis in women and gender studies from UC Berkeley, and she's currently writing a book titled The End of Allyship, A New Era of Solidarity. Very currently, we were just talking about the book proposal. How's that going, Kim? Terribly. Don't tell my agent. No one can tell my agent how badly it's going. It's going, supposedly. (laughs) Slow and steady wins the race. And I will be first in line to read it, of course. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm well. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I haven't read Little Women since I was about 14. And there's so much here. There's so much here. I know. We got a juicy one. We are covering chapter 23, which is actually the last chapter of the first volume. It's all happened and there's engagements, betrayals, romance, tons of gender. <laughs> so much gender is happening. So much gender is happening. So before we get into all that, I should ask you, what's your relationship with Little Women? Oh, my relationship with Little Women is, I think, similar to my relationship with white liberal feminism. It's one of the early harbingers for me of what white womanhood was. So I read this when I was at the beginning of high school or at the end of middle school and obviously did not take a critical eye at it at all. But that was around the same time that I started reading things like The Awakening by Kate Chopin. I started thinking about what it meant to be a woman, a cisgender woman, at least. And I kind of built from there. So Little Woman, to me, I think it probably is to a lot of people is our introduction to thinking about what it means to be a little woman. And I read it around that time. I think they do that to you in high school on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to read it as a little woman. So I, like a lot of people, did that. And oddly, in the last few years, I've been with my partner for a while. My partner and their family are really invested in this, the media that comes out of little women. So I hadn't touched it or thought about it until we started watching the Little Women movies. And I will say that until I read the book again, it was pretty much untroubled as the building blocks of white femininity to me. Fascinating. I mean, one of the things we do on this show is because the world of Alcott scholarship is so white, I'm really consciously trying to welcome in voices who don't necessarily belong to that very white liberal tradition of interpreting it, right? Like we had Hannah Khan on the show talking about her book, which is What If Little Women Was in a Pakistani Family. We're going to have a discussion coming up actually on a special Scrap Bag episode in the future with my friend Leo Min about the ways that Little Women has been interpreted in anime. 
Oh, <laughs> there's more than one. And we, we actually just discovered there's an anime where it appears Louisa May Alcott herself is like a central character. She's a superhero who has time powers. Fascinating. Yeah, so, okay. Little women, it's certainly a cross-cultural thing. And we're trying to pull from all kinds of ways of representing and interpreting <laughs> it. You can look forward to the anime episode, but we'll set that aside for now. Kim, do you have a good sense of which March sister you are? And again, for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister. Oh, that's so good. That's a great question. The way that I envision the March sisters is through these archetypes of womanhood and femininity. I want to say that I'm Joe. I'm really not. I'm probably Meg. I probably oh. use the soft levers of power more than anything else. <laughs> so I fancy myself a Joe. I'm definitely more of a Meg. Based on this chapter, do you think Meg has a good future of the consulting field of working with organizations? <laughs> How would she approach that, do you think? I have such a fraught relationship with consulting <laughs> that I hope Meg would stay far afield of <laughs> consulting. But in terms of what the field does, which is introduce challenging ideas and kind of clandestine ways of dealing with them, I think you could be great at that. I think this chapter is a really good example of how Meg would maneuver an old white man in the <laughs> position that she wanted him in. Yeah, exactly. Not just old white men, but old white women as well. Absolutely. So let's get into it. Do you want to just recap for us what happens in chapter 23? Uh, March settles the question. Yeah, one, I love the title because the title gives away absolutely nothing. You think it's going to be something else entirely. And suddenly it is the... Aunt March is kind of this foil. So you've got Meg, who's been dancing around this attraction with Mr. Brooke for a while. He's obviously quite a bit older than her. I can't figure out how much older, I will admit. Yeah. And this is when the proposal's imminent. And I think everyone knows the proposal's imminent. Joe is very anxious in contemporary terms about <laughs> this proposal. She's reassured by Meg repeatedly, I'm not going to do it. I'm too young to make the decision. Interestingly, she's not too young to get married. She's too young to make the decision, which I think is fascinating as a turn. So they're having this conversation about how she's not going to marry Mr. Brooke. Then comes Mr. Brooke and then comes her aunt. And she gets into this conversation, this very fraught conversation with her wealthy aunt. The aunt says something like, if you marry him, I'll give you nothing. You'll inherit nothing. And that's when she decides I'm going to marry his ass. You uh, <laughs> classic jerkwad. I'm going to marry this guy. And she gets engaged. The dismay of Joe. The thrill of the rest of her family. I think Amy starts drawing them. At that kind of when you know it's done. She's drawing the lovers in repose. <laughs> and... That's it. That's the end of the first part of the book. The book just makes such a big shift after this. And so I'm also fascinated that the end is the engagement. And to me, that says a little bit about Alcott, that the engagement is the end. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah, just the broader context. This is the last chapter of the first volume. And at the time, she wasn't sure she'd write anymore. They asked yeah. for a book for girls. She said, here you go. And it was only because it was such a smash hit that she went on to write a second book. And she really resented in that yeah. second book having to marry all the girls off. Yeah. What's interesting is Meg and John Brooke end the chapter engaged, but Joe and Lori, and I'm sure we'll get to this, also have a moment where they pledge to 
be friends for the rest of their lives. And it's like a parallel moment for them that is given not equal space, but I think equal weight to what Meg and John Brooke have just done. That says a lot about Alcott's priorities for Joe and what that friendship meant. It was that important. It was like, we need to be friends literally forever. And she talked about spitefully not having Joe and Lori get together in the second half. She was like, I expect vials of wrath to be poured upon my head, but I rather enjoy the prospect. And to that, I mean, one of the things that struck me on my most recent reread, and let's start here, is the way that Meg is given so much agency and freedom in making this choice. Yeah. Was there any moments where you were like, oh, wow, this is not a conventional proposal scene at all? Yeah, she's feeling herself in terms of power, which I think is really important in terms of how we read this book and kind of the long durée of this book. I think I understood it as the building block of white womanhood, but also it is a building block of white womanhood culturally. This is such a formidable book to kind of think about in a moment when we think about gender in the same breath. I think that being said, what I see, the reason why I was like, I think actually Meg as opposed to any of these other people is because she feels her power through resisting and also enabling the proposal in the same moment. Yes. Right. So at first he's like, I'm not doing it. I'm too young. I don't want to make this decision. I'm shoving him off. And then the minute someone who's older than her, and interestingly, I think the way that the adults deal with her is this very traditional, I'm the authority. Yeah. You will bend to my will kind of way. Mm -hmm. She pushes back against that in every instance. Right. So first she says, I don't want to marry you. I'm too young. And then she says, I am going to marry you because this old lady says I have to, (laughs) or it says I I shouldn't. And to me, that's kind of universal. It's a young woman asserting her power, finding it and using it. And we all do that in different ways. This is the way in which she's engaging with the reality of her life. She doesn't have a lot of choices. She's a poor person. Yep. There's not a lot of resources that she's utilizing in any of the other moments. This is kind of it. And so exerting herself here, I think, is really powerful. And I find that a really key moment where I think a lot of women would as well. I don't have a lot, but I can definitely tell you that I'm not going to marry you or I can tell you that I am going to marry you. Yeah. It's a circumscribed question. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's so fascinating how the word power is repeated here several times when Meg is kind of making her calculus about whether or not to marry John Brooke. Interestingly, Joe says, if Brooke goes on like the rejected lovers in books, you'll give in rather than hurt his feelings. And then immediately when John Brooke is actually asking her, as you said, she says no. And as she's deciding to say no, Alcott writes, the love of power, which sleeps in the bosoms of the best of little women, woke up all of a sudden and took possession of her. That is badass. Yeah. Oh, Yeah, there's a lot of defiance there. Mm -hmm. And defiance, I think, even at that, I'm not a historian in any way, shape, or form. But I think defiance as a theme at this particular historical juncture feels really key as well. Yeah. That like all of these people will defy something. Mm -hmm. All of these characters defy something. I think Joe's fascinating because Joe defies the conventional trappings of gender. Mm -hmm. But this is also Meg defying gender in her own way. I'm not a little girl. You don't get to tell me what to do. No one gets to tell me what to do. And it's very woman, hear me roar kind of vibes. No, I love the phrasing, you know, the power which sleeps in the bosoms of even the best of little women. This is a gender defiant moment for Meg. It's It says she's taking satisfaction in trying her lover's patience and her own power. 
And that's before she gets to telling off at Marsh. That's the fascinating thing. Alcott really gets to have her cake and eat it too. And then Meg stands up and defiantly refuses the proposal and then turns around and accepts it in a really affirmative way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I also, you know, reading this, through a contemporary lens is challenging because the entire time you're thinking about how much older he is. There's the material part where I'm like, you are poor, dude. I mean, maybe you shouldn't do this. I think that she has affection for him. That's kind of what I picked up on. There is an affection. But in love is a push. Yeah. And I know that marriage in this moment is not necessarily about love anyway. So just having some sort of affection for your spouse is great. Yeah. But it is tough to see that the reclamation of power is as kind of circumscribed as it is. Yeah. This is kind of the only way that she's asserting it. And I think that's kind of to me where Joe's responses and reactions come from, apart from being slightly narcissistic and self-involved. No, Joe is completely on her own planet. She's like, don't marry him. I am going to come out banging pots and pans when you refuse him. It's going to be great. She is not having it. So they have a lot of conversations. We learn a lot about their views toward romance. And Joe is, when do we begin with Joe in this chapter? I mean, she says, don't mean to have any romantic affairs. It's fun to watch other people slander, but I should feel like a fool doing it myself. And Joe looks alarmed, even thinking about having a romantic affair. She's intentional about this. You know, she's not wishy-washy. She's not, oh, maybe if the right person comes along. That's Meg's response is Meg says, oh, you won't feel that way if you liked anyone very much and he liked you. The follow-up to that is Meg spoke as if to herself. She and Joe are not the same species. Yeah. Meg can give advice, but even as she's saying it, she knows she's really talking herself into it. There's just something mysterious and different between her and Joe. I agree. I feel like there's a lot of individualism in each of these characters. They're all kind of doing very different things. No one's really talking to each other. It feels like a chapter in which everyone's talking across each other or in completely different directions. Yeah. I think Meg is trying to deal with this question of whether or not she loves this guy and whether or not she wants to spend her life with this guy. The guy is trying to not, I don't know exactly what Brooke is doing, but he's not necessarily trying to convince her either. He's telling her how forlorn he's going to be. And then you've got Aunt Marge worrying about her inheritance. Yeah, yeah. They're all different kind of planes of a somewhat parallel conversation. And I think taking them each in their own standalone conversation is kind of interesting to do. I think Joe is having fully projecting. Yeah. It's fascinating. (laughs) Just like, I would never do this. I don't want to lose my family. It's like a whole different thing occurring. Yeah. Joe is looking at this as like a moment of loss and separation rather than joining together or getting a new family member. And last episode with Cameron Garrett, Cameron just offhand was like, oh yeah, of course, Joe is jealous of John Brooks. She wants what he has. And I was like, oh. I would have not thought that she would be jealous of him i think the hostility is real yeah i think there's a part of traditional marriage where you lose that woman yeah. forever and yeah. the groom's family earns essentially a servant yeah 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, we're talking about the most traditional trappings of marriage. The Grimm's family earns a servant and the wife's family loses right. a family member. And even today, you'll go to a wedding and you'll see the bride's parents crying and so sad. And they're like, we're giving her away. And that language still exists. So I don't think that the response from Joe is wrong no. or completely outlandish. It's just so very different from everyone yeah. else's. Well, and to that end, I think because there's this language of losing and giving away, it's interesting that Alcott then makes a point of using language about Meg's independence, her bravery, her power in this moment. Yeah. When she says, I shall marry whom I please at March and you can give your money to anyone you like. First of all, I hear air horns in the background. (laughs) But then the the immediate follow-up, she nods her head with a resolute air. She's decided. Meg hardly knew herself. She felt so brave and independent, so glad to defend John and assert her right to love him if she liked. Yes. This is, if Alcott had to end on this note and had to end with an engagement, she was going to do it her way. This is absolutely an engagement written by Lou Alcott. <laughs> She's asserting her right. She feels brave, resolute, independent. It's not sappy fainting into each other's arms at all. No. Yeah. And I think that is the trend. I'm not going to take up space from your next conversation, but the transition to the second part of the book is wild. <laughs> to go from, I understand that this is the power that's available to me. I'm using it in this way. The the contrast is deliberate mm-hmm. amongst these characters and even internally to Meg herself. And then the fluffy thing that happens right after is real, real weird. Yeah. And so the kind of context of the book itself really starts to show. In the first part, you've got a lot of people who are hyper aware, the systems in which they function and live and work, and they're making the best of it. Right. And they're making really interesting choices based on what's available. And then suddenly it's the shift of it feels like an advertisement a little bit more. And it's interesting that Alcott begins the book that way, because obviously Joe's going to immediately follow it, followed up by spurning Lori. Right. And then going off on her own and having her independent adventure. And maybe that is to, you know, lower the rose colored glasses a bit, like begin in this hazy world of romance and then move into this period of like, okay, this is what homemaking is actually like. This is trying to make dinner when you have two babies. Yeah. A lot of the first book for me felt like contradiction, like deliberate contradiction. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is, okay, so this is what you've been given, but yeah, what now? Yeah. And that felt like a lot of what was here. And I think the characters also themselves unfold that way. I think of Brooke himself too, unfolding that way Mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah, to me, there's this kind of speedy underbelly to each of these characters. And I think when I started reading, I was like, this is just really straightforward. Yeah, It feels like a book of happenings. They're just unfolding through life, these women, and they're just kind of happening through their existence. I described it to my partner as it feels like a book of little happening. Yeah. You know, your existence and that the kind of power of writing, I think, is to make the banal important and profound. But in these characters, it definitely everybody's got this shadow side that they're using, that they're playing with. And Meg is no different. I think maybe the structure changes a bit in the sense that instead of having it really tightly more condensed, each of the characters in the same breath is working through those contradictions. 
they unfolded a little bit more slowly because I think also Alcott probably had some restrictions on what could happen in the second book. You got to give the people big fluffy events. Yeah. And then you can do what you want. Yeah. I mean, she talks about being inundated by these letters about who are the little women going to marry? Please tell me Joe is going to marry Lori. And that was where she put her foot down. She's like, not him. Yeah. No, that's special. I think that's a limited imagination, right, <laughs> of an audience. And even sometimes of the people who are playing or in those roles. I remember, I'm going to take us on a quick tangent. Yes, I please. promise I'll come back. But I watched the first couple of seasons of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Okay. And one of the characters is, to, I think to a lot of queer and trans people, obviously a queer person. So that's like a butch queer yeah, person. Yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah. And when they ask the actor who plays this white, masculine, non-partnered character, what do you wish to see for her? She said, well, I want her to meet her man and get married or something like that. And it was so weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think there's always going to be a part of, particularly when it comes to gender and experiencing this stuff, I think there's a thing that I anticipate and want and expect. And you can only push that so far. You can only have her say no to the engagement in the beginning, but not yeah. ultimately. She's going to have to marry him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even you talk about this being a book of contradictions. I mean, as soon as Aunt March leaves, it says she seemed to take all the girl's courage with her. For when left alone, Meg stood for a moment, undecided whether to laugh or cry. Before she could make up her mind, pay attention to this language, she was taken possession of by Mr. Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right. Yeah. Agency's over. <laughs> yeah. But also, I don't even think it's something as nebulous as agency. She took the money with her. Oh. Like, yeah. imagine someone coming in and saying, I'm giving you nothing. And I know yeah. you are destitute if you do this. And then her saying, I am definitely giving you nothing. Yeah. First, it's if you do this, you get nothing. And then afterwards, because your sister has been like, do it. The aunt leaves with all the cash. And so, of course, I would be deflated. Yeah. Am I thrilled my sister's made the decision for herself that she has? Yes. But decisions aren't that simple. Yeah. And I mean, I feel the tension. Like, do I laugh or do I cry? I'm sure it felt <laughs> great telling Aunt March to go to hell in that moment. But then you're in the aftermath. You're like, oh, shoot. I just told this guy I wouldn't marry him. And now I don't have any money. Because she yeah. didn't just say, I'm not going to marry you, John Brooke. And then <laughs> so he's hurt all. Yeah. And then within the same, I think, instance, or I don't remember where this is, but the language of this was really fascinating to me. At some point, Joe came in and found Meg enthroned yeah. on Brooke's knee and submissive. And I just thought, that's such a heartbreaking turn of phrase. Yeah. Wearing an expression of the most abject submission. Yeah. I mean, in Joe's eyes, in Joe's eyes, she sees it as abject yeah. submission, but still. But we're not giving, we don't have a glimpse into seeing it from Meg's yeah. point of view. Right. And so we are forced to see it through Joe's vantage. And what we see, I think, is an absolute irreversible shift. Yeah. And here we are now back to the point where Meg is just kind of people's plaything. It's a difficult chat. She really goes on a journey. And I, I <laughs> love how ferocious and brave and defiant she gets to be. But then we're about right back to abject submission. Yeah. It's frustrating. I wound up finding myself more pleased with her trajectory in this chapter than I remembered being on previous oh. reads, just because the bravery and the language of power and independence stuck out for me more. Like it was clear that Alcott was 
doing what she could with the material. (laughs) But now we have to get into Joe. Because there's a ton of Joe in this chapter. We haven't been talking about Joe at yeah. all. And I want to circle back to Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Amy <laughs> yeah. Sherman Palladino. Because I think this is our way in. Did you watch Gilmore Girls? I did. Okay. I did, yeah. No one ever talks about this. But Amy Sherman Palladino is one of the most egregious perpetuators of lesbian queerbaiting in the history Ooh. of television. And I will say, Paris Geller. Oh, yeah. Paris <laughs> a hundred percent there's a scene where she has a date and she's freaking out and she's like Rory you can't be here because if he sees you standing there looking all dateable he's gonna want to date you yeah and Rory's like where do you want me to go and Paris opens a closet pushes Rory into the closet and closes the closet door like what is happening yeah what the spring break trip (laughs) where Paris kisses her Right. She's like, I'm just experimenting. It's guys like it. How was I as a kid? I'm like, I can't be here. In the reboot, when we meet her as an adult, she's an IVF consultant with a page boy haircut. And she's like, I'm divorced. Still not a lesbian. I'm like, what is happening? Yeah. And I think I have so many questions about Amy Sherman Palladino as a showrunner and as a creator, because she has the Shonda Rhimes thing is wild. Yeah. The things that she said to Shonda Rhimes, I think, really give away her politics. Yeah. So that makes sense. But there is a tremendous amount of queer baiting. And I think I read this when I was closeted. Yeah. And I don't think I even thought I was out to myself when I was 14. (laughs) By the time I was 16, I was like, something is a (laughs) foot. Something's a foot. So reading this now really makes you want to like bang on the door and just say, you are, you're queer, honey. Or something. You're not normative in oh. some way. And I so desperately want to push this in a different direction. Yeah. And I think one of the cool parts of this is the really strident protection of kinship that I yes. think is a very queer form of kinship. Yeah. Like you're my friend, you're my friend forever. This is my sister, this is my sister forever. Yeah. And the fact that these things happen at the same time, to me, someone who studied queer kinship, I'm like, that's what that is. Yeah. That's what that is. And in a different world, Paris Geller is definitely going to come out of the closet in Gilmore Girls. And she's going to say, I actually don't care if somebody sees Rory because I would like to date Rory. And that's what I'm trying to do. Exactly. Right. Or something less, you know, that's not my favorite formation of that. Because I don't think queer women are here to try to siphon off straight women. But there is definitely... This kind of eagerness that I felt (laughs) as a queer out person for Joe to just step in there. Yeah. And for the no to have a reason. Yeah. Right. And that isn't to say that people aren't transgressive of gender norms in the ways that they can be transgressive without being queer, without being trans. But it's right there. (laughs) No. And we know that in her life, Alcott explicitly expressed attraction to women. We know that in this book, Joe, on a couple of occasions, says, I just wish I could marry Meg myself. And sometimes people don't know what to do with that because that is a weird thing to say. (laughs) But I, I think it goes back to what you were saying about queer kinship and how Joe sees the marriage bond. Ultimately, maybe what she wants, romance with a man, doesn't appeal to her. But this thing of maybe having an eternal sister, maybe that sounds really good. Or having an eternal friend in Lori. What do you think about that? 
what is that called? A Boston marriage? Boston marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that what Joe was looking for? Joe is looking for a Boston marriage guy. <laughs> yeah. I think that there are so many aspects of queer kinship that are unique. The form of intimacy that queerness enables. The fact that I think queer kinship is so much more expansive than extractive. I think that what's happening with Meg is the sense that She's leaving for this very extractive transactional thing. Yeah, yeah. And if I could describe queer kinship as one thing, it's expansive and the opposite of the impulse toward extraction and that capitalist exchange. I think that's it. If I was Joe, I would also want to protect my sibling from that. Yeah. And you hear little kids say this stuff all the time. Like, I want to marry you. Right. And for kids... Marriage is just this forever you're in my house and you hang out with me. <laughs> and that's not foreign and that's not strange because I think Corinna says force us to ask those kinds of questions. Like, well, what is marriage really? If you break it down into its component parts, what is it really? Right. And it is this deeply intimate bond that rivals your family of origin or is very similar to it in a lot of ways. So I actually don't find that to be weird. I, I feel like I have to do with the fact that she wants to marry her sister sometime. To me, it's indicative of someone who really tastes again yeah. what marriage is and what marriage is supposed to be or wants to participate in it in a very different way. Did Joe want to be the primary relationship in Meg's life? Yeah, I know that Alcott was like, actually, speaking of queer kinship, Anna Alcott, the real life Meg, her husband died suddenly and left, and they had two young children at the time. And Alcott, in her journal at the time, writes, I must be a father to these children. I'm going to step in and yeah. fill that role now. And the boys called her Papa. Yeah. Let's get into it. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, as thinking about this, let's just pull in all of the queer culture references. Yeah. I've been watching the L Word Generation theory <laughs> yeah. because of course I have been. And in a very early episode, I think in the first season, Shane is called someone's uncle. Okay. Because Bet and Tina are like dropping off their kid at college or something's happening. <laughs> and Angie calls Shane Uncle Shane. And I was like, in the world of queerness, this makes 100% yeah. sense. Oh, yeah. Right? And so, of course, in Alcott's world, you would step in and be their father. That makes sense. Not just because of the relationship you have with the other parent, yeah. but also because of the gender that you embody and gender being this very flexible, fluid thing. And so these moments of, I, I wonder how straight cis people read moments when Joe's like, that's unmanly. I'm like, how would you read that I, as a cis straight person? <laughs> it's interesting that you, you say like, how are cis people going to interpret when Joe says that's unmanly? At the end of this chapter, when Joe and Lori say their own vows to each other. I'm going to I'm going to call them vows and I'll read them in a second. The exchange sort of ends with Lori affirming Joe's manhood and I'll explain what I mean. So Joe says it can never be the same again. I've lost my dearest friend, sighed Joe. You've got me anyhow, says Lori. I'm not good for much, I know, but I'll stand by you, Joe, all the days of my life upon my word I will. And Lori meant what he said. I know you will, and I'm ever so much obliged. You are always a great comfort to me, Teddy, returned Joe, gratefully shaking hands. Well, no, don't be dismal. There's a good fellow. Yeah. Hello? <laughs> Lori is the most gender-affirming person I have seen written in 
I personally have seen written in literature are from this era. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a part of the thing that solidifies their friendship is that he is extremely affirming of this person who transgresses a lot of what their body dictates, right? The weird hat wearing and the sports and all of this stuff. He just kind of rolls with it. There's never an inhibition. There's never even a question. Yeah. And it's the language of this. You could certainly drop this into someone's lap with no context. I'm sure they would think this seems kind of romantic, but they shake hands and he says, there's a good fellow. This absolute affirmation of that weird middle space that their relationship takes. He's saying, I'm going to be in your life forever, all the days of my life. Yeah. You're my fellow. I'm thinking about Alcott's real life relationship with Alfie Whitman who is one of the inspirations for Lori. And the last letter that she sends him is after Little Women's been published. And she's like, so obviously you're the inspiration for Lori. Everyone wants Joe and Lori to get married. How silly is that? <laughs> anyway, how are your wife and children? I mean, I wish we were like young and we could just hang out again and you could just be my boy. And it's so funny. <laughs> it is. It's real weird. And I think, again, I'm doing the unforgivable thing of reading it through a contemporary yeah, setting and just thinking, this is what I think a lot of queer and trans folks hope for. Yeah, from yeah. their friends. Yeah, which is inviolable, not even friendship, but something closer to like allyship or solidarity. Of you're always going to be here for me. You're always going to see me in the way that I see myself. Yeah, and that's what the bedrock of this thing is. And yeah. even I mean. The Lori Joe thing gets real weird at the end. I think it just kind of falls off. It just goes off the rails. Yeah. The beginning is really beautiful. Yeah. No, well, you say the end, and I assume you mean the end of this book, but it's interesting. There's some talk about Lori says, oh, don't you wish you could take a look forward and see where we'll all be in three years? And yeah. well, in three years, things aren't so good. But in the fullness of time, at the end of Joe's Boys, which is the final book in this series, Joe is running her boys school at Plumfield. And Lori has purchased the property next door and made it into Lawrence College and established a postgraduate institution there. And they're running these schools together. They all live on this big campus with their families. They hang out. They do adventures. They put on plays together. They co-write and co-direct plays. They have little nicknames for her. Like They really get to carry this precious friendship with them into adulthood. (laughs) Yeah. And there's no mention of this being awkward or uncomfortable for their respective spouses. They just get to keep being best friends. And I mean, that gets me thinking about, it's almost a facile thing to point out, but I think as a queer woman can have lots and lots of friends who are queer women. And I don't know, maybe some of them have been romantically involved. Maybe they haven't, but there's no expectation in that relationship necessarily that, well, I can't be too intimate with you because- that would look romantic or that would seem romantic. And I don't think that straight men and women can do that with the same ease necessarily. (laughs) Yeah, for your listeners, I'm nodding vigorously. Yeah, I don't think that's real for straight people. No, it seems like there's no way for Joe and Lori to have this intimacy if they are straight and married to other people. Alcott finds a way, right? Did you ever read that Curtis Sittenfeld short story about the Mike Pence rule? Oh my gosh, no, but there's a Curtis Sinfeld thing that I haven't read and now I must read it. <laughs> it was so delicious. It was about this artist who decides she's going to do an art piece about Mike Pence's rule, which is I'm never going to have dinner alone or be alone with 
oh, well, it's yeah. my wife. Like, that's my... It, it's this wild boundary that he's yeah. got around women. Uh-huh. So Curtis Sittenfeld's protagonist, it's a short story, it's fiction. Her protagonist is a female artist. She's like, I'm going to prove that this is horseshit. I'm just going to go out for dinner with a bunch of male friends and take their photograph yeah. and review them about the experience. And on the third interview, she starts an affair. <laughs> <laughs> So cheeky. The artist is fully aware. She's like, oh, it's, it's reality. But there really are rules that govern how intimate like a straight man and a straight woman can be with one another. Whereas, yeah, I have friends that I've been romantic with as a queer person and we're still friends. I have queer friends who I'm extremely close to who've never been romantic with. Yeah. It's much more porous. <laughs> yeah. Right. You can move in and out of that in a way that I don't think straight people are allowed to. And I think... For me, the moment when Joe and Lori's friendship kind of hit that obstacle, are we or are we ever becoming romantically involved, is to me an example of the strain of the book, because I don't think that ever really needed to happen. No, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people were like, why isn't this happening? He clearly is has a lot of affection for Joe. Joe clearly has a lot of affection for him. And in the straight imaginary, the only thing that can be is romance. Yeah. But like, why does this happen? I'm like, I don't know, because they're queer. Yeah. And there is this really, for lack of a better word, beautiful ability of queer friendship and queer intimacy to be incredibly intimate Mm -hmm. and not have to be romantic at all. And I think that's kind of scary for a lot of people, but also it's not something that you can see written about very well. Yeah, I think we're just going to talk about all the queer media that we've consumed ever. (laughs) I just watched Colette with Kira Knightley. Okay. And it's about, I don't even remember this person's name necessarily, but it's about France's most famous bisexual author. And she's like this huge hit. And she's got this relationship with her husband and then different relationships with other people. And even within this film, I found it really fascinating because I was like, she's probably got a lot of also friendships and relationships with people with whom she's not romantically involved. I think her longest term relationship was with a trans man. And they make a decision to have this person be a trans man in the story. I don't think all historians necessarily agree that they would impose that, right? As I think the boundless question that it always is. But she has her primary relationship with her partner And I was like, but that's all she's got. She's not, in real life, she's got a lot of friendships that probably meet her on these planes of Mm -hmm. intimacy everywhere else that I think queerness enables. Because when every relationship is off limits, then you get to decide what friendships and relationships are. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about that as you were speaking, but I was literally preparing to ask, why do you think Joe doesn't have any friendships with other women. And then I was like, oh, fucking course she does. <laughs> she has not right? friendships with other women. They're her sisters. Maybe yeah. it's just no one is going to be a better friend to her than her sisters can be. I, I don't know. Alcott talks about, like, I never liked girls or knew many except my sisters. So, it, but that's... Well, Alcott's got a pretty toxic view of female friendships. Yeah. You read this yeah. book and you're like, oh, female friendships are two-faced. Yeah. In the early chapters, that's what you're getting. Yeah. It, female friendships are two-faced and they're saying something behind closed doors. And if you overhear yeah. them, they're trash talking you. 
And it's really misogynist. I think it's mean girling. It is, yeah. In a contemporary sense, female friendships are just mean girling. And I have a set of friends, three women that I grew up with, and we're all extremely close. And I don't have sisters. And so to me, the friendships are the created family. The friendships are kind of where I derive a lot of my intimacy. And so to see someone who's like, oh, your biological family is where it's at. That's where all your friendships are. And anyone who's outside of the home is trash talking you and gossipy and vain and shallow. Except for dudes. There's always going to be a lot of guy that is great. No, it's not great. And there's an extent to which this is based on my read of the archives, just Alcott desperately wanting to be a boy and be among boys and be in male homosocial spaces. But some of it is just misogyny. Even when she's on the women's suffrage beat and she's trying to get out the vote because she was one of the first women to vote in Concord when they had a school board election. So ahead of the school board election, she's going out and trying to drum up women voters. And she comes back and writes in her journals, like, these dumb old gossips, all they do care about is drinking tea and buying dresses. It's like, (laughs) this is a women's suffrage icon. I'm like... (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's like being socialized a woman is bad. Yeah. You know, being socialized a woman to be verbal, to communicate in these ways, talk about these particular things is really embarrassing. And I think to me, I read that like a projection. Yeah. I don't want that imposed upon me. Yeah. So I'm just going to tell you that it's fresh. Yeah. No, it's (laughs) I think there is like kind of a profound alienation that young queer women and trans men can feel in groups of women that's feeling like a failed woman. It's like these girls and women are speaking the language that I simply do not understand. And yeah, that's a really difficult thing to navigate. This is a tangent. I was listening to another podcast recently about American Girl Dolls and the person they had on was like, so I was given Molly as a kid. They're like, oh, why did you choose Molly? She's like, I didn't choose Molly. Nobody would choose Molly. She's a huge nerd. And she just goes in on Molly to the point where I was like, what? <laughs> what did Molly ever do to you? Like, Molly wore braids for function, not for fashion. She didn't really care about style. I'm picking up an undertone here. <laughs> I'm not sure it's possible to be homophobic to a doll. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it is. I remember that model will be homophobic to a doll. I kind of experienced that in being among groups of women where I just, I didn't feel as a kid, as a quote unquote girl, just not feeling feminine enough, feeling like I was doing something wrong. It was like, everyone had the rule book with me and that really producing alienation. And yeah, you know, that can manifest sometimes as plain misogyny, which is difficult. And I think that's present in little women. Yeah. And I think that's because our understanding of a woman is not diverse in the slightest. There is a world in which there are butch women who are straight. There is a world in which there are masked women who are just thriving. And that's not this one. And so at every juncture, I'm like, you're shaping against the fact that womanhood is this thing. Yeah. And I often think of Beth as this throwaway character. Mm -hmm. That is just the epitome of self-sacrificing martyrdom femininity. There's nothing really there for me with Beth. I get almost nothing from Beth. And I think that's because maybe that's a projection. I think particularly of women of color of like, you have to be self-effacing. You have to give everything and it can almost kill you, but you're going to be resilient. You're going to come back. And 
again, be this vessel in your family for their hopes and their dreams and all of these things. And that's it. These women in this book are what womanhood can be. That's all womanhood can be. Yeah. And so to me, the misogyny is an of course. If this right. is all womanhood can be, then of course there should yeah. be a little misogyny. Yeah. And of course, Joe just refuses it outright and is like, I'm not going to be a wife. That's not happening. Lori and I are going to say these friendship vows to each other. He's going to call me my good fellow. And then at the end, Joe lounges in her favorite low seat with the grave, quiet look, which best became her. And Lori leaning on the back of her chair, leaning on her, his chin on a level with her curly head, smiled with his friendliest aspect and nodded at her in the long glass, which reflected them both. That is, his chin is on a level with her head. They are the same. This is a relationship of equals. He's leaning on her. It's pointing towards something so different of what a person born a woman in that era could be or what their future or their relationships could look like. But that's only to me. Yes. I think the friendship between Joe and Lori has so much potential and it shows you really what can exist when we're a little bit more creative with the ways that we form families and friendships. But the thing that enables that is masculinity. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's not anybody else's relationship to a woman that the only thing that exists that makes that possible is the fact that they're both, I think, hyper masculine. Well, I'm people of to push back on that a little bit because I, I read even in this, in the language of Lori leaning on the back of her chair and Lori being the one to make this effusive declaration of I'll stand by you, Joe, all the days of my life on my word. I will. Lori comes prancing in, bearing a bridal looking bouquet laboring under the delusion that the whole affair had been brought about by his excellent management. Like these are feminine traits for Lori, this investment, yeah. romantic love and this profuse emotionality. Yeah. It's not Lori's masculinity that oh. enables it. It's Joe. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing that made mm-hmm. Joe's life, I think, possible. And that's where you see all the creativity at the end of that yeah. living the life they want to live. It's Joe's refusal to be kind of a woman at every turn. Yeah. Right. And the minute that anybody else falls into the trap of femininity, it's like, well, you're doomed. (laughs) You're a little bit doomed. Exactly. She's like, Meg, been good knowing you. Like, (laughs) yeah. You know, going to these parties. Yeah. The more feminine you are, the worse it's going to be. The more criticism you open up your, you open yourself to. And so all of these little moments, I think, wind up showing kind of Alcott's hand a little bit. Like, I think femininity is like a, bunch of trapdoors and masculinity is kind of where it's at (laughs) which is not the common read of little women you know and there are parts of this book that are brilliant moving always to like sisterhood and womanhood and motherhood and this chapter is not necessarily one of them (laughs) or yeah i think moments of it but they come when womanhood is being defied or questioned it's interesting that the person who withdraws the inheritance money is a woman. Yeah. I think what is really profound about Little Women is that everybody who drives the plot is a woman. And that's rare in a lot of senses. Aunt March is very much deciding what to do with her inheritance and her having an inheritance Mm -hmm. is a big deal, right? You see, I think they're also kind of forced to be reckoned with. She kind of toys with their lives a little bit in in the chapters prior to this. She's like, you want to 
take a day off, take a day off and <laughs> watch how the thing, you know, falls apart. <laughs> Makes yeah. feelings about that. But that's really neat. And I think the fact that it is about their unit as women is so important. I think on the individual plane, the thing that I wind up coming with, particularly in this chapter, just like in this one chapter, is the sense that femininity and womanhood is really as bounded as you think it is. Yeah. Joe's grief in this chapter is real. Everyone else is very happy for the newly betrothed, but Joe is like, well, that's it. And I need to be cheered up. And it's going <laughs> to, I'm just going to sit here with a grim, Project. quiet look on my face. So I don't want to keep you here too long, but this is an opening line from the chapter, which just fascinated me, which was like bees swarming after their queen, mother and daughters hovered about Mr. March. So that's quite mm-hmm. the inversion there. Mr. March is the queen and the mother and the daughters are the male worker bees. That's interesting. Within this family, the rules of gender are sort of coming apart. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite things about Little Women is that power is not about the bodies that it sticks to. Yeah. And I didn't know how I'd feel about the father figure in the beginning and then toward the middle of where I kind of landed with this book because he is kind of the nucleus of the family at all points. He's this self-sacrificing, really upstanding guy. And that's kind of all there. It's uninterrupted celebration of their dad. And so to me, the queen bee thing has a lot more to do with he's the center of our universe, as opposed to this very gendered sense of, yeah, you know, insect life. And I think that happens a lot in this text, which is the gender bending of it has a lot more to do with, I think, how Alcott sees power as opposed to the ways in which power is about being a man or a woman. And in that sense, I think it's extremely progressive as a book. Yeah, It is always going to be really white. It is always going to be what it is. The thing that I take away from it now is the sense of, I still feel restricted by gender and power in these ways. Look at how people were creative with it in this sense and yeah. this moment and how people are still being creative with it to this day. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think we've talked before in the show about how it's little women as a text. It can be so expansive and welcoming and progressive and visionary when it comes to queerness and then just so silent on the subject of race. <laughs> For a book about set in the Civil War, that's a choice, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just not there. And race is in everything, right? And the way that they engage with each other feels very white. The way that they understand gender and the way that gender is expansive feels very white because there are always going to be people of color who are gender non-normative at this time, particularly if we're thinking about the civil yeah. war. Black folks were always, specifically Black women, were always gender non-normative because they were always working. They're always in the yeah. public sphere, And so the absence of it was really profound because I was like, a lot of the stuff that you're looking for just doesn't exist for white people. Yeah, absolutely. As you were saying, even the category of womanhood and femininity, those were not available to Black women at this time, right? Yeah. And we've talked a lot in the show, like I think I even mentioned in this episode a few other adaptations that sort of transport the March Mm -hmm. sisters, like Henna Khan's More to the Story, which is... Little Women in a Pakistani Family. I always really recommend Bethany C. Morrow's book, So Many Beginnings, which is reimagines the March family as a Black family growing up in a freed people's colony toward the end of the Civil War. 
that is almost an improvement on the canon. It's really beautiful. I haven't delved into this yet, but there's a K-drama that just came out and it's on Netflix called Little Women. Oh my God. And it is an, it's a Little Women adaptation, but somehow there's a bank heist. Mm. And I'm not sure how into it, in, but I'm also I'm into it. So yeah, what do you think of that transporting the Marx sisters across cultures? Why do you think that happens? What do you think those readings can tell us about this book or the audience? There's a lot here, right? My partner's family really likes Little Women. My partner's family is not people of color. My partner obviously is not a straight person either. And I wasn't really into it because I didn't think it would give me anything new when I was younger. I was like, this is fascinating. I always grew up working class. So this struggle of this working class family that is struggling in part because they lost money was not something I was really interested in. I was like, some of us have always been here. <laughs> it's like, I actually don't care if you suddenly are poor. I have always been poor. And so I think if you come from a particular class background where that part of the narrative really appeals to you, and then on top of that, there is such a thing, I think, as sisterhood. And it's brought because of all the ways that queerness and transness doesn't necessarily fit into static ideas of sisterhood. But this, to me, is the way that extended family systems work. That is a deep moment of recognition, I think, for communities of color. I talk a lot about cousins and having cousins who function a lot more like siblings in my life. The lines of being close to your family and what that means and what you lose and how your lives happen if you are really close to your family, that appeals to a lot of people, particularly to people of color. It's about struggle. It's about class struggle and it's about family. And so I think we really love that. I think, or I speaking as a person of color who is queer, really love that. I think the part where it hits its limit is, but this has kind of nothing to do with me. And how do I make it so that the parts of it that appeal to me, that feel really resonant, also those parts can be reflected in other ways. And that's where I think you might get these really compelling adaptations. Yeah. Right. There are a number of kind of meta texts like that. I think Pride and Prejudice, really good example. (laughs) One of my favorite Curtis Sittenfeld books of all time is eligible. Yeah. And I think she, I don't know. I looked at the acknowledgements, which eligible is a pride and prejudice. Yeah. Oh, big time is it. Yeah. Yeah. The way that she folds in a trans character, I think is amazing. Interesting. Okay. Have you read that? No, I haven't. (laughs) Everything in me wants to send you my copy right now. But I'm a long time Curtis Sittenfeld fan. And I had no idea that there would be a trans character in a remake of Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> and then I got to the end because I was like, she actually did this pretty well. I didn't expect her. I honestly didn't expect her to do it very well. But she didn't really want to consulted a bunch of people. There's a long list of acknowledgements and thank yous afterward. And so I think we want to see these stories over and yeah. over again. We want Pride and Prejudice. We want Little Women. But we want them to reflect us more closely. Absolutely. The first sentence of Hannah Kahn's book is, this is the worst Eid ever, which is a direct parallel to Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, right? Yeah. Or Bethany C. Morrow saying, okay, I'm going to keep this setting because the Civil War is pertinent to Black history, but we're going to, yeah. we're in a freed people's colony now. The girls have different hobbies because of the resources that would have been available to them, right? Yeah. I don't, maybe the bank heist has something to do with it. I don't know. There's real transformation that has to happen when you pull a narrative into your culture. And I love that that's happening. I think it happens because as we've discussed, 
the second half of this book is so unsatisfying. It doesn't end the way anyone wants it to. <laughs> There's a real impulse to fix it, you know? Oh, that's fascinating. You think it's like a, I want to make this so much better. Right. <laughs> Greta Gerwig is like, I'm actually going to intervene in the ending of this story <laughs> to show that yeah. Sherwood is not Miriam, by the way. I'm curious what Alcott said about the ending, if there is an alternate ending floating around somewhere. She said that Joe should have remained a literary spinster. That was her vision for Joe. That's square. Ultimately was. Yeah, that's square. Literary spinsterhood, which was the path that Alcott chose. So, yeah. Well, Kim, I could talk to you five more hours about this. You have been a wonderful guest. But Kim, thank you so much for coming. Where can people find you online? How can they support your work? Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. This was a blast. It's a revisiting of a part of my history that I haven't thought about a while. So I appreciate that. People can find me all over the internet. I'm on Twitter. I've got a website, kimtramphd.com. I'm still working on this book. I have no idea how people write so many books. This is a bear of a process. So you can find me all over and hopefully I will see people bumping around the internet. Yeah. I'm excited to hear this one come out. Yes. I'm excited too. And I can vouch. Kim has a great Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore, but yours is one of the Twitters that I miss. (laughs) I'm not there since one took over, but I do miss your Twitter. Yeah. And as always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can also buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. And you can also now find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. You can follow us there for news, updates, sneak previews of forthcoming episodes, thirsty photos of Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet, all the important basics. <laughs> so join us there on Instagram at Joe's Boys Pod. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.